Aaron. Thanks, Michael. Or, or, is this too loud, or is this a good volume? Okay, very good. Hey, you know, thanks, Michael, for speaking last week. If you guys were here, you knew Michael spoke. If you weren't here last week because of fall break, then uh, go online, listen to the podcast, listen to Michael. I was up in Michigan. Uh, two, my two girls go to college up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, beautiful town. My wife and I kind of, that's where we met. That's where the first dozen years of our lives together was and so the girls have returned to the place of like their literally their birth to go to college and there's a lot of family around it was 15 and a half hour drive up and the only thing that got me through that is like on the other side are my girls I haven't seen them in weeks on the other side and had just a tremendous time with them we went to church the girls this is just shows their maturity way more mature than I was at that age I was in a bible college and I didn't go to church on Sunday all right the girls have not, they found a church a lot like Crossings. It's sort of like Crossings North. The worship style is very blended and the, the preaching and all this and just the engagement in the community. They're very, very engaged in refugee and international ministry. Like we're engaged in the clinic and poverty and prison ministry. They've got their area. But anyhow, all this to say is I'm sitting there in church and I look down and my girls have their journals out and their Bibles in their laps, like real Bibles, and they're taking notes feverishly, and I'm like, I hope they're taking good notes, because I'm not. But it was a good sermon, noteworthy sermon, but as a dad, it just kind of made me realize, my wife has done some good stuff as a mother, because I would like to go, man, that's all me. But the truth is, it's been the partnership of the two of us. And then at another part of the service, when we were uh, singing together, I just looked down, and, and I have a 14-year-old boy, too, I've talked about. And all three of them are singing the the hymns and the songs that are on the screen, and it just did my heart good. I just absolutely ate it up. And it was sort of a reminder to me of why we do this, because we come in here to recalibrate our lives and to find that compass of true north so that when we as men interact with people around us, it could be at work, it could be with our kids. Some of you have little kids in your life and you're hoping that as they get older, they won't become terrorists of an international scale. Right now they're just terrorists of a toddler scale, you know, but you're hoping and hoping. And some of you have kids that are older and you're just hoping that they get it in the gear or something. And so, you know, I, I just sat there this weekend interacting with my kids and marveled. And then on Sunday, my eldest child told me, you know, Dad, I, I got a neat job offer in Grand Rapids next summer. And I, I might take it, and it pays really well, and it would be a great advancement. And she's crying, and I'm crying, and she's like, what? I'm like, I want to take you home, swaddle you in a blanket, and hold you on my lap. But you're 21 years old. And this is good and healthy for you to stretch your wings and to, to declare your independence. This is good. But it was, again, a great reminder of why we even do this, is the, the natural order of things, and we're going to get into that topic here in a little bit, the natural order of parenting and engaging with others has a healthy component, but left unchecked or with poor guidance or poor mentorship, we end up sort of spiraling in an inappropriate direction. I've seen awesome families, incredible families, when the kids were little, and then mom and dad didn't know when to relinquish and give more independence to the kids. And then the kids uh, end up in rebellion, particularly when they get to college. But I've also seen those families where the kids were little and mom and dad were like, you know what, it's good for them to stretch their wings and express themselves, and they're seven or eight. And, And they shouldn't be given that much freedom at that early of an age, and so the kids have trouble. 
And so this isn't, first and foremost, a parenting gathering, but this is about being a godly man. And for most of us, or many of us in this room, we're either, we are either parents like I am with some kids that are a little older, or maybe someone with a newborn child that is so sweet and precious and doesn't quite sin yet. But yeah, I saw that expression. Like, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, But but we come here to kind of work on what we can work on, which is ourselves and our relationship with God. And uh, I mentioned this weeks ago when we started this off is that I'm sometimes leaning into the work of a guy named Robert Lewis in a, a workbook he created called Authentic Manhood. It became known as Men's Fraternity or the 33 series. But this lesson in particular, I borrowed heavily from him, and I want to give credit where credit's due so that later if you bump into his work, you don't go, Bill is a dirty plagiarist. I want you to be able to go, ah, okay, this is where Bill got it. I I took it in a slightly different direction or a big different direction in a couple spots, but I want to give credit where credit's due because that's fair and that's right. Now, just just as we begin this conversation in earnest, we, we have said this before, and we revisit it, and I think we have to revisit it pretty much every time we get together, that manhood, the definition of manhood and what it means to be a man in our culture is completely messed up. Am I right? I mean, I think we're probably in here because we know that's true. If we thought, you know what, everything I need to know about being a man, I can catch off Netflix, we would just turn to Netflix for our picture of manhood. But manhood is in serious disrepair. It's sort of like if you've, if you've ever bought a fixer-upper, manhood, the definition of it, broadly, in our world today, is sort of like that house that's a serious fixer-upper. The foundation is all jangy, there's broken windows, part of the roof has collapsed and is leaking like a sieve, which means the interior is decomposing, the porch is all uh, cattywampus. The lawn is more weeds than anything else. There is an old Chrysler up on blocks in the driveway, and the garage door only comes halfway down. That would be the picture of man in our culture today. There's something there you can look at. You can kind of go, there's a form there. I kind of recognize, but there's a whole lot to that picture that is not good. And the, there's, a, there's a handful of problems that we have in our, in our culture today or uh, th- that affects this definition of manhood. Problem number one is our culture has confused, criticized, and degraded manhood. Not a surprise to us. We talked about this on, I think, week one or week two, is that our culture has so confused, it is so criticized, and is so degraded manhood that we're left without a real proper definition. Just think about the confusion. We're coming upon Christmas. May I be the first to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. If you've been to the stores, the decorations are starting to trickle out. They were out in July in Hobby Lobby, but that's a hobby store. But if you go to Costco, there's rows of Christmas now. They just kind of skipped Halloween, went right for the Lord's birth because they're Christian. And... um, and, uh, but what happens at Christmas time? A lot of the ladies and some of you gentlemen that I get a little worried about watch the Hallmark Christmas Channel, right? You ever watch that? Oh, you, here's the clue. If you've never, just watch one because you've seen them all after that. Every last one of them is the same blasted one. There's a woman in distress that wonders if she'll ever find the guy. By the way, she's striking. She's a beautiful woman. And uh, she can't get a date for some reason. And everybody in the Hallmark movie is striking. I mean, even the old people, the young people, everyone, you're like, 
This is like a J. Crew ad, the whole show, right? And then there's a guy. There's some guy in there, and he is successful, and he is Prince Charming, and he is Mr. Right. He is Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, if your wife's made you watch that. And, uh, and so this guy is perfect for her, and they finally, at the end, finally declare boldly their affection for one another. That's the gist of a Hallmark movie. But the reason I bring this up is the guy is successful. He is just a specimen of masculinity. Handsome, handsome dude. And he has just enough drive to have nice things. But not so much drive as to offend anyone, particularly the lady. And if she wants to be the driver in the relationship, totally cool. In fact, that's what he wants. Even though he's the CEO of a company or owns a lot of stuff, because he's always successful. She never falls in love with a guy who's a part-time garbage truck driver. Never happens. There's never like... I just fall for this guy, and he's kind of mediocre to look at and way out of shape, but he's just a really nice guy. That's never the Hallmark movie, ever. But this is created, this is an example of the confusion in our culture, is that we get this idea that a man should have drive, he should have success, he should look good, he should dress fine, but he shouldn't be vain, and he shouldn't be bossy, and he shouldn't be in charge. He should have opinions that he shares with her, and that they all congruent with the popular kind of wavering opinions of whatever is popular. And yet, isn't that confusing? Because if you have drive, you have drive. And if you have some strong drive, you'll probably offend some people. Not on purpose, just because that's just kind of part of the wiring, right? You know? Have you ever noticed how every other driver, speaking of literally driver on the road, have you ever noticed every single last one of them, except yourself, is an idiot? <laughs> Am I right? You're, you're like, what, how did they get a driver's license? And, you know, every now and then I reflect on the fact the guy behind me is like, how'd that idiot get a driver's license? And I think to myself, why is that idiot behind me? Because that's how men drive. And I'll verbalize this as I drive. Any of you verbalize that while you drive? And if you have a woman in the car, what does she typically do? Now, maybe, maybe you married just the right woman, and she's like, they are idiots, you know. And you're like, where'd you come from? You're an angel. But most of the time, when I do that, my wife's like, they're probably having a rough day. Maybe they're going to the hospital. You know, I, I bet they just had bad news that their kids had a really bad report card. Right? You know, so, but, you know, this is like this confusion in our culture. How far is too far to be kind of a, a strong kind of leader? And our culture says, not too far. So there's confusion in our culture. Also, men are criticized. Just think of the term toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. It's a true thing. There is a toxic form of masculinity. Have you ever heard toxic femininity? It's weird, but I, I don't think I've ever heard that term. We have toxic masculinity, and then we have femininity. Kind of weird, if you ask me. Yet I've met some ladies that I'm like, pretty toxic. But we don't have the term. But we own the term. And so when a guy hears the term, a guy who's like having a really terrific day is able to distinguish toxic masculinity in his own, you know, like he's able to go, well, toxic masculinity really is an abusive type of guy, a sexist kind of guy who's a real chauvinist, who has a very, very very low view of women, who treats women or other guys with complete disrespect, the jerk. There, there, we can identify toxic masculinity. But the term gets used and you're like, well, what if I'm toxic masculinity? What, what if they perceive me that way? And we also have a whole generation of boys that are growing up hearing this term being used. And so it doesn't sound like that's the definition of toxic masculinity. It sounds like masculinity is toxic. Now, I know that that's not what people are trying to convey, 
but inadvertently, that's what's being heard by a lot of people. And so for men, there's this sense of criticism. And then finally, there is this uh, degraded manhood. Just think of a culture that men and women now defend a pornographic culture. I mean, just think, when Hugh Hefner died, I was a little surprised he didn't get a state funeral out of the deal. He died in his 80s, and people were like, oh, it's marvelous. He's surrounded by a harem of beautiful women. You know, as he passed, they were all naked or whatever. You know, but, and, and there's men, there's, it, you, I never see a man with the Playboy bunny shirt ever, but I do see ladies with that. I do see it on, like, flaps of truckers, but I don't see it on a guy. I don't see a guy walking around with the Playboy bunny, but I see it on women. And if... If we kind of go, well, guys look more at the video stuff, that is true. And as a result, we're, we're kind of saying, it's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's no big deal. There's women defending pornography today. Kind of like, well, you know, everybody has a good time. And, you know, maybe the guy will leave me alone if he looks at that. Or whatever's the motive behind it. If the shoe was on the other foot and this was a, a, a thing that catered more to women than men, most men would be like, hey, that makes me kind of feel cheap. And as a result of pornography, men are looking at images and they're going, I literally don't measure up to that guy. Literally. Or I, I, I can't perform like they do. Or I want to bring what I see there into my bedroom. And if you're married, your wife's like, I'm not in that nasty video. I don't want to, that's not me. And uh, along, along with it, there has been a new pornography opened up to women in literature. It's normal. I've been on air, I was sitting on a flight about a year ago, and there was this elegantly dressed older lady next to me. I mean, she looked very sophisticated, definitely in her deep 70s, you know, but very elegant and distinguished, right? No, she wasn't wearing sweatpants with nasty old flip-flops in the airplane. I sat next to that person too. She had it all put together and she's sitting there reading Fifty Shades of Grey and I was like, stewardess, can I change seats? Pervert, right? No, I didn't say that. But I did think, how weird a culture is it that grandma can read this in front of everybody and odds are somebody will be like, isn't that a good book? But it's degraded masculinity. It's made us into dogs, like that we're just instinctive and that we got to have it. And so we, we're just sexual beings. And that's degrading. So that has, created, that has created a massive problem for defining masculinity in our culture. That's problem number one. Problem number two is the dynamics of broken and fractured and imperfect family of origin. Most, all of us come from imperfect families. So we, we may not come from hyper-dysfunctional homes. I'm going to share my story next week a little bit more, but uh, there's still, no matter what home we come from, they are not perfect homes. But the family of origin, our families of origin, our dad, our mom, our siblings, had an impact. Our grandpa, our grandma, our aunts, our uncles, all of them had an impact on our definition of manhood. Today in our culture, about 40% of homes, dad is either absent completely or he is mostly absent. 40%. Only 60% of homes, if we understand the statistics and are interpreting them correctly, have dad at home. That doesn't mean he's a good dad. It doesn't mean he's an engaged dad. But it does mean four out of ten. That's a huge statistic of homes without a dad in them. So that means 
No offense to mom, but that means mom's got to be mom and dad. She's got to somehow be dad. That's not good. It's not good for mom to be dad any more than it's good for dad to pretend to be mom. It's good for mom and dad each to play the role they play. And we're all products of the home we grew up in. You know, some, some guys grow up in a home with a healthy role model, with a healthy father and a healthy mother, and some grow up with an immature and selfish man. And most of us grew up in homes where it was a combination because dad's not perfect. So that's problem, no, problem number two for the definition of manhood. And problem number three is that our dads were flawed and imperfect men. No, dad is perfect. If you're a dad, you know it. I kind of joke sometimes. In fact, my, uh, my middle daughter just told me it was, not an, it was not an appropriate joke. And I was like, yeah, you're right. But I'm going to repeat it anyhow, which is um, I'm creating memories with my kids that they're going to go broke telling their counselors about later. And isn't that good? That's a good one. I got it from my older sister, actually. And uh, there's some truth in it, you know? Our, you know. You get to a certain phase of your life. One of the keystone moments of a man's life is when he is able to look at his dad as a man and go, that guy was so messed up. But, and here's the cool part, one of the other keystone moments is when you can look at that messed up dad and go, he was doing the best he could. Those are, we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But, but this is a problem. Dad's flawed. He's an imperfect. No dad is perfect. They're doing, they, they were doing the best they could with the tools that they had at the time, even if you grew up with an awful dad even if you grew up with an absent dad. This is one of the weirdest. We'll talk again. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks. So if you disagree with me, you got to come back and hear why I mean that. Well, I want to talk a little bit because whenever we get together, I feel it's very important to, to open up the scriptures together. And so there's a passage uh, in, the, in the book of 1 Samuel, the 14th chapter, and it's an epic story of a major father fail. Saul, who we have talked about over the last handful of weeks, he was the predecessor to King David, was not only a bad king, not only a weak leader, but he was really epically one of the worst fathers in the Bible. And this story that's found in 1 Samuel 14 is one of, the, one of those stories in the Bible that, that demonstrates how bad a dad can be. And so the context of it is Saul and his military have been fighting the Philistines, on and off the Philistines, back and forth, back and forth. And so they've drawn up a battle line with one another. And finally, uh, Jonathan, who's one of the great sons, ironically, in the Bible, Jonathan is a terrific son. He's as great a son as Saul is bad a dad on the other extreme end of the scale. It's pretty wild. But here we have this story of Jonathan and his armor bearer breaking through, bursting through the Philistine lines. And as a result, the Philistine army begins to crumble. The Israelites attack. And then Saul, in his fervor, because he's an idiot, says, go after him. But it's important to have victory as fast as we can. So it doesn't matter if you're hungry or growing faint. If anyone eats any food, they'll be put to death. Isn't that a great military leader? Terrific. You know, Patton was a tough leader in the Second World War. He would have never even thought to say something that, that insane. And so, uh, so we pick up the story. It's in verse uh, 24. We pick it up. And it says, Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under oath, saying, Curse be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I've avenged myself of my enemies. Isn't that funny? He takes the battle on personal terms. It's not like, I'm fighting for the people. It's like, you are fighting for me. That's a great, well, that's a terrific example of terrible leadership. 
so none of, the, none of the troops tasted food. Verse 25, the entire army entered the woods and there was honey in the ground. So here they are, they're hungry, and there's a Snickers bar. When they went in the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. As if God was just sort of like tweaking Saul and everybody around, like, I know what I'll do, bada boom, bada bing, honey. And so honey is coming out of the tree. But no one had put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan, the son, had not heard the oath his father had bound the people with it. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb. He raised it to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. He's hungry. He's tired. He needs some sustenance. Then one of the soldiers told him, uh, <clears throat> uh, Sir, your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint, by the way. If you wondered why everybody's falling by the wayside, not able to fight, it's because your dad said don't eat, and we haven't. I hope that honey tastes good, Jonathan. Jonathan said, I love this. This is just terrific. Jonathan said, my father's made trouble for the country. That was the Hebrew expression for my father was an idiot. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little honey. He like flashed his eyes at the guy. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? And so they, they fight to a standstill. And uh, the men are all tired, and so they start to, like, roast animals and make a barbecue. And Saul's upset because the army stopped, and he didn't give him orders to stop. And he goes, I want to know whether we should keep going or not going, so we're going to go before the Lord. And he prays, and the Lord doesn't answer Saul, which is, by this time, God's habit. Like, I am so done with you. So God didn't answer him anyhow. Wasn't going to answer him. Didn't matter how many prayers he prayed. There was not coming an answer. But there's no answer, and so Saul goes... Well, obviously, the reason there's no answer is because somebody disobeyed my order. And I don't know if he had some inclination it was Jonathan or what, but he's like, Jonathan and I will stand over here, and all you stand over there, and then we'll basically roll dice and figure out who did it. And so they do that, and, and it says, uh, Saul, said, uh, Saul said, therefore, come here, all you leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son, Jonathan. I love that. You know, even if it's my son, he must die. But none of them said a word. Saul then said to the Israelites, you stand over there and I and Jonathan will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. When Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, and then he, he basically cast die, the Uman and Thurman. And uh, it says that by lot, then, it turned out that it's on Jonathan and Saul, and the people are cleared. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told him, I taste a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. And Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely. He becomes severely religious here. If you do not die, Jonathan, what a terrific dad, isn't it? What a beautiful, I made an oath, you shall die. He even doubled down on his oath. But I love this. The men, the men said to Saul, should, whoa, 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 should Jonathan die? He has brought about this great deliverance in Israel. Never, as surely as the Lord lived, not a hair in his head shall fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Now, Saul, what's interesting here is Saul took a foolish oath. He's like, if God, if anybody eats, they'll die. That was not an oath God would have ever asked anyone to take. That's like swearing you're telling the truth when you know you're lying. It, it's, it, just swearing on something doesn't change the fact it's not true. So just declaring an oath, you know, if, if you said, you know what, 
May God strike me down if I'm not drunk by midnight. Well, guess what? You shouldn't fulfill that oath. You shouldn't have made the oath, and you certainly shouldn't be drunk by midnight. God wouldn't be like, well, you did, you did, you did say an oath that you would later sin, so I'm going to hold you to it. So if you don't sin in your oath, then, then I'm, I'm going to hold you accountable, and so you'll sin in not doing it. So your choice, you either get to sin getting drunk or sin breaking the oath. That's not how God works. God never would have asked Saul to sacrifice his son over something foolish. So Saul's choice, once he's made a foolish oath, because he's a foolish man, is to actually sin a second time. So if he would have killed Jonathan, he would have, killed a, he would have murdered an innocent man. So he would have gone from one sin, a foolish oath, into a second sin by killing his son. Now, what's this all got to do with us? In this topic, we have a picture of a guy who's a selfish, tragic leader, who is invoking the name of God, who thinks he's on God's side, who is using the name of God to justify being a bad actor as a king, as a leader, and as a father. Now, I think this is an important picture. I think Saul is in there to sort of lift a weight off of our shoulders so that we have more people to relate to. In fact, this is what really separates the Bible from other literature, is that God doesn't sugarcoat and gloss things over. He doesn't present people as flawless. Only Jesus is perfect. Only God is holy. Everybody else has massive flaws and holes in their character. And some of the people never get their act together, and that's Saul. Saul sort of just is in this little side. Why is this, why is this helpful for us? We've already looked at David extensively and a little bit at Saul over the last handful of weeks. As we look at a guy like Saul, it's a great reminder that we do have choices in front of us. As men, we can either be like a David kind of person or we can be a Saul kind of person. Selfish, self-centered. And what's Saul doing? Saul's acting instinctively. He's just acting like in the way that he feels is the right way to act. He's not consulting wise people. Fortunately, wise people intercede because they're, they're like, we're about to lose our greatest warrior. It ain't Saul, that's for sure. Jonathan's the only redeeming part of Saul's whole family. And so at least the leaders kind of jump in the middle and like, no, 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 take him out. We are in so much trouble without him. God is the one working, God's working through that guy. And so I think it's important for us as we look through the scripture is that we see some of these examples that are positive and some of these examples that are negative because we can learn from both of them. And in this case with Saul, we get this incredibly clear snapshot of a guy who is just kind of following what seems right to him. And so this is where, and this is why we come together for Man Challenge, is because as men, what we have to do is more than that. We have to do more than just draw out definitions of what manhood is from dad or grandpa or uncle or from Netflix or from a guy at work or even, even a guy at church that seems to have a lot of homespun wisdom that may not be biblical wisdom, but it sure seems to be a nice commonsensical type of stuff. We can do better than that. But we can only move forward by looking backward. And the last, we have four weeks left after today of Man Challenge before the Thanksgiving break. And we're going to take a break from Thanksgiving through Christmas and then fire back up in January with a whole new series. But when we, when we close up, what we're doing here is we're going forward by looking back. We're doing some reflective work as men. This is going to be hard work, but it's important work. And you don't move forward without looking back. 
Now, I know, like, uh, your coaches, like, if you ran track or were in football or anything, they would always say, like, don't look back, right? You're supposed to be forward. If you're looking back, you can't run fast. Well, that may be true in sports, but that's not true in manhood, is that as men, it isn't about running faster. It really, truly is about having the right perspective. And the way that we're going to get the right perspective is, is looking back. So what do we need to do? What do we need to examine in our lives? And for that, we, we're going to look at the five common wounds every guy faces. And this is another part where I've adapted a bit from Robert Lewis. I took some of his ideas and then, then just sort of played around with them and contemporized them a little bit. But the first wound is, a, is what we could call a father wound. And I know some of you go, you don't know my dad. My dad's the best. My dad, if there was a trophy of dads, my dad's face would be on the trophy. And good for you. But even that dad has his flaws. And, and some dads are, are physically, some dads leave a, a wound because they are physically absent because they had demanding careers or they were just career corporate climbers. And it wasn't that their career was that demanding, but that became the thing. In fact, it, it, you, most of you or some of you probably know this. this is the weirdest thing I've tried to explain to my wife. When a guy is in his 20s, Fresh out of college, you know, it, it's like his deal is he wants to win the woman, start a family, get that settled. And, and he could be romantic, and he could be attentive, and he can be crazy engaged, and, and he can be on the prowl of the finest restaurants or the neatest experiences, the romantic getaways. All that stuff becomes really important to him. And somewhere in your 20s or 30s, another weird thing happens, which is like, I want to be respected in my career. I want everybody in my career to know that I'm really good at what I do. And all of that all of a sudden shifts in another direction. And so... A lot of dads have wounded their kids, particularly their sons, by not being around because they're out there chasing. If we go back generations, go back 100 years ago, many men, many boys grew up at the apron of their dad in the blacksmith shop, in the cooper's shop, in the wood shop, on the farm. So a lot of young men were constantly around dad out there. Mom would say, go follow your dad around the farm or go out and help your dad. Or dad said, time to get up. It's time to, time to stoke the fire in the furnace so we can bend metal today or whatever it was. That was 100, 200 years ago. And then time memoriam, in memoriam backwards, right? But now dad and son are very separated. Dad's out there. He's physically absent due to work. Some dads are just physically absent due to the hobbies. They're so much into their hobbies. They would rather be with whatever their hobby is, the boat, hunting, uh, the shop, the wood shop, the, you know, crawling underneath the old Camaro, whatever it is, and they would rather do that. And they're not inviting their son into that world with them. They just want to be out there on their own. And then, uh, then some dads, some dads uh, are, are actually you know, gone because they abandon their families. That's my older brother. My, my brother's five years older. Ten years ago, he walked out on his family, left his two, two girls. Started a new family, met a woman at work. That was it. Never looked back. He's, he's technically, is one of the weirdest things. I, you know, I hear the term deadbeat dad, and they had to garnish his wages just so child support would come in. It breaks my heart. You know, like it does, makes no sense to me. I cannot fathom how, how some men are able to do that. Women rarely do that. They do, but they don't do it at the same extreme as men. But that leaves an amazing gape of a father wound. Some dads are, are emotionally absent, and uh, they, they are physically there, but they just don't engage, they don't engage their sons at all. They're physically present, but 
you know, they're doing this, they're, they're on this thing right now, they're doing, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and as a result, they're not even really, you know, they're not even paying attention to what's happening with their, with their sons. Some dads, are, some dads leave a wound by living vicariously. So you might even be that kind of dad who you're like, oh man, I am at my kid's game, I'm his personal coach, I'm his cheerleader, I'm telling him how to throw the ball, and they're living vicariously, they're living in the past. They were, some dads were great athletes or mediocre athletes, uh, some dads weren't athletes at all, but they insist that their kids become athletes, and so they're living vicariously. They have expectations heaped upon their kids that they never faced, and that gentleman leaves its own kind of mark on a young man. If they think that I get approved by dad when I do the things he approves of, that leaves a wound on our sons. And some of us carry around wounds from that. Some dads were so damaged by their own upbringing that they end up doing some of the same damaging things to their kids. They had little to give from their background. They didn't have role models. They didn't know where to turn. They didn't bother reading a book, going to a seminar, seeking advice, going and getting a counselor. They just said, my dad never needed that, even though, as I reflect on it, he was a terrible father. But I will just do what's instinctive. And that's a Saul kind of dad right there. So there's the, that's a common wound, the father wound. That's a big one. That one is a massive one. And if you've never examined that, this is going to be great as we go through it, because that's very helpful. And and if you have examined it already, it's always good to refresh and to return to it. I have found throughout the course of my life going back and reflecting on this is very helpful. I love my father, but my father's not perfect. Okay, so that's common wound number one. Number wound number two, this might have shocked you. You're like, I'm waiting for it. Yes, the mother wound. Not as much on the mother wound, but there's some stuff here. Uh, you know, this is, it's hard for mom. I'll give mom a lot of credit here. I, one of my favorite comedians is Jim Gaffigan. How many of you guys know Jim Gaffigan? He's very funny. And uh, I was just listening to him, one of his older routines, and he's like, you know, when you consider motherhood, it is amazing what a woman can do. From her body, she can grow a baby. She can deliver a baby. And with her body, she can feed a baby. And his statement was, when you consider men's contribution to the whole thing, it's pretty pathetic. Guys are like, I help too. And as Gaffigan jokes, yeah, doing the one thing you think about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, that was it, right? But it is hard for mom because, it, you know, she's got this nurturing instinct. And mom, this is so important when the kids are little. And as they get older, it's very important and very difficult for mom to back away. And some moms can't do it. They can't let go. And so any woman particular who comes into the guy's life becomes a rival to mother. This is where the, this is the epicenter of all mother-in-law jokes. If guys tell mother-in-law jokes, oh, you should hang out with women because their experience with mothers-in-law is far more extreme than most of the guys who joke about mother and mothers-in-law. And so there is the mom who just can't let go. This was my dad's mom. She, she cried and whined enough that he dropped out of college and came back and lived at home. And then my grandma got, her, got my grandpa to buy a farm, a little gentleman's farm, because she knew her sons were interested in that, to entrap her sons. And her idea was that all the family would live on this family farm compound in some sort of, like, not, not a real agribusiness kind of way, but like a sick, twisted kind of way. And my uncle, he went to Michigan State University. They were in Pennsylvania. He went to Michigan State. 
and he wouldn't even come back to Pennsylvania. He'd visit, but he wouldn't. Grandma was like, I be, I, we bought you a farm, and you're studying agriculture. And he's like, I'm staying in Michigan, where the farms are terrible, but I'm staying here. But my dad ended up moving to the farm, and my, my grandmother, all the days of her life, plagued my father. He couldn't, and it created, I saw it in my home. It created all kinds of tension. His kids, when she finally moved out to Michigan where we lived, she insisted that my family go over to her apartment every Thursday for dinner. Now, that would be okay if grandma was a halfway decent cook. But what she did to food was a war crime. <laughs> she, I mean, I kid you not, it was some of the worst food. To this day, I could have a nightmare of Stephen King proportion, nothing compared to a meal that my grandma search prepared. I'm like, I could make a movie on the Food Network for Halloween on all of the stuff that she put on the table. It was gross. And, but we went every Thursday. And my mom, all the way there, my mom, why do we have to do this? It's every Thursday. And my dad was like, she gave birth to me. And, I would, I, and I'm in the back like, you're 50. You know? <laughs> that was a while ago, not wearing diapers. You know? As a kid, I was able to realize, well, that's kind of weird. As I, and I remember thinking, I'm in the back seat. That was one of those things I reflected on the back, in the back seat. I'm like, Ain't going to happen in my home. I am not doing this nonsense. But there's the, the overly bonded mother wound. Uh, there's, the, there's the moms who are, become critical henpeckers. They, they become, because they're living through their kid, and this is a real dilemma a lot of women face. Because especially if, if they poured so much into their kid, if the kid doesn't turn out great, or at least in the estimation of mom, great. If the kid ends up kind of just kind of meandering about, mom loses it because she says the whole world will judge me based upon my kid. And so she becomes critical and she becomes kind of obnoxious to the kid. This is a wound that in particular can affect men. Um, and then uh, some, some moms, uh, if they had a bad relationship with dad, they just hate the ex-husband, rail against him. And so the son grows up in mom's home most of the time, and she gets to hear how terrible dad is. And so it creates some distance between dad. And so mom, in particular, she can wound her daughters too, but when we're talking here as guys, mom can wound just like dad can wound. Well, that's wound number two. Wound number three is the uh, the loneliness wound. And uh, Brett's going to talk about this one here in a few weeks. Most men admit, and this is a big deal, most men admit we have no friends. Or if, if we, we have guys that know us, but we don't feel really known, it's an epidemic. In the military, suicide is a massive problem, and the military is trying to address it. And uh, one school of thought is it's because of the post-traumatic stress from the recent wars, and that's true, there is that. But, but then even the, I have a friend who's a high-ranking in the military, and we've talked it through, and he said, Bill, the guys who liberated the concentration camps in World War II saw far worse. The men in the jungles of Vietnam saw every bit as bad as the guys serving in Mosul. It was bad. If you served in, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know it was bad. And if you're in close combat, it was bad. And there's plenty of good reasons to have PTSD from that. So I'm not minimizing the current wars compared to past. What I'm saying is, is that, that as, as generations have moved on, what the difference is is the World War II generation, even the Vietnam generation, they had friends. They had relationships. They had buddies. They, they, there were men in their lives that they spent time with. So when the trauma of things that they've experienced, either in war or just in home life, they had a place to go. They'd go to the VFW hall, and they'd support one another and talk about 
life and what have you. But even non-fellow veterans, they had friendships. And as men, we're a lonely breed. You know, there's a, there's, in fact, if you drink alone, that's one of the signs that you need to be at Celebrate Recovery and probably join AA, you know. Drink, you, you can have a pizza by yourself and people are like, well, that's one way to live. But if you, if you take out a bottle of bourbon by yourself, you, you need help. I mean, that's a sign. That is a symptom of a real problem. And the irony, of course, is we have far more ways to stay connected, right? I mean, there is no, we can FaceTime, we can text, we, we, have, we have a myriad of ways we can connect, and yet, even though we have all these myriad of ways of connecting, we feel less connected than ever. So there's the loneliness wound. Wound number four, this is the broken view of manhood wound. You know, we've covered some of this. This is, there's even a joke for it, failure to launch. You know, that's an idea that a guy sort of gets out and then comes home and then gets out and then comes home. When I moved to California, they had these, uh, we used to call them duplexes. They were like little uh, mother-in-law apartments. You'd have a, you know, a big house and then attached to it was a little separate entrance. And so when my wife and I first moved out there in 2012, we toured around one of these houses. It was quite neat. And I said, oh, is this an in-law's apartment? Because I just assumed that's the mother-in-law's apartment. That's what they used to be called. He says, no, no, it's for your kids. When, they, when they're done with college, they come back and live with you. I'm like, no, I'm changing the locks. I'm not going to do that. That's not, that doesn't sound a good idea. But it is part of reality of life today. Uh, it, broken view of manhood. Of course, we talked about pornography. Probably don't need to talk about that anymore. Uh, we have, we have a, a video gaming culture. And I'm not knocking it. I mean, there's a place for hobbies and interesting things like that. But if you're an expert marksman, if you're an expert fighter, warrior, if you're a great driver, if you're super courageous, but you've never held a rifle, you've never defended your country, and you're, you're you know, like one of the idiot drivers that we were earlier talking about, then, you know, the video game culture is perpetuating a broken view of manhood that you can vicariously, you can fictionally be good at something and that's good, that's as good as being in real life good at something. And uh, there's the rise of the participation trophy. There's been a lot written about this one. You know, the, the problem with the participation trophies, it started out like, hey, it's so sad when a kid cries because he loses. And my attitude is, no, it's not. Actually, it's not. Like, I, I've talked to my boy a ton about, like, I want you to be able to lose with dignity with your head held high because you put in your best effort. And it's okay to, like, after an emotionally charged dodgeball game to be pretty ticked off that you got hit at the end. That's okay. That's good. But don't think you're a winner, too, because it's okay. I mean, it's okay to lose. The Bible's replete with examples of people who, who win eternity in the end but lose every battle on earth. That's okay. But the real problem of the participation trophy is we turn winning into something meaningless, and we all know who really won. So he's like, here's your trophy, and the kid's like, yeah, I know I didn't deserve this. And it's true, and the kids know more than the adults do at that point, and we're not doing them any favor by the participation trophy. But what has it done? It said, you know, masculinity is so fragile that if the guy doesn't get a trophy just for showing up, that little guy, it'll break his spirit. Now, that is the dumbest thing on the planet Earth. If you examine the history of our world, actually competition, and I, by the way, I was not an athlete in school. 
I didn't participate in any athletics. I didn't win any trophies. I didn't get any letters for my letterman jacket that I didn't buy. I didn't have any of that. I'm not speaking as like the victor who's like, yeah, winning's the best because I'm a winner. No, actually, I lost plenty. I didn't even I didn't even participate in a lot of it. But that that's the point is it's a healthy thing for men to be able to go. Here's the top. Here's the bottom. Here's the middle. The Bible talks about contentment. Be content. Learn, learn to enjoy the view from where you're at. And if you don't like being at the bottom, then do whatever you can to get higher up. But do it in a godly fashion. Do it in the right way. But this has damaged our view of masculinity through that. Or we have the perpetuation of the boy man. That, you know, we have men that are acting like boys and we sort of applaud it. Or we have the, I don't know what to call the guy, the ogre. We have that guy who's a sexist, pompous, chauvinistic jerk. And, and that has become, strangely enough, as culture has gotten softer, we have seen a resurgence of hate crime, of white supremacy. And, and one of the theories for the return of that is because there's all this softening of other things, and guys are, are running to the other extreme. Jordan Peterson, in his book, 12 Rules for Life, it's a good book, he writes about that. That there's an, where, where guys can't be guys, you push the most distorted view of masculinity off to the fringe. They find each other, form a club, and become very dangerous. Very interesting. I encourage you to read his book. I don't have time to unpack that. Um, and, and then there's, a, I'll end with this one. Um, on this uh, is the, no, my time. I don't have time. Sorry. I won't, I'll share this one later. It's a good story, but I'll, I'll save that one. Then the final wound, wound number five, is the soul wound. And this we get from our father, Adam. That's what the scriptures tell us. This is a wound that's so deeply embedded in us. We're born with it. Sweet little babies have it. It's a scar from our first parents on the planet Earth. Sin entered humanity, and with sin came corruption, came a distortion, came the inclination to turn off course, to miss the mark, to fail in many different areas. And that's just it. And so we, when it comes to the soul wound, we inherit it. It comes to us genetically and by, uh, it comes to us honest. We are also the victims of it because we're raised by sinful parents. No matter how great they are, they have sin in them. Even if they're holy people trying to live a God-honoring life, they won't always get it right. And so they will cause some problem. And then we, we in our sinfulness, victimize others. We don't mean to usually. At least I hope we don't. But we, we say things we shouldn't say, do things we wish we hadn't done, neglect areas where we shouldn't have neglected, and all that's sin. And so that's a soul wound. All right, this has been um, heavy stuff, and so this is one of the conversations a few of us have had after Man Challenge, which is, uh, this is heavy stuff, and so sometimes we turn to the table and I'm like, good luck discussing it. So hopefully after a handful of weeks together, you feel enough comfort to have open dialogue about these things. But if you don't, you could just say, like my friend Harvey, he would say, and you could, so you could just talk, you know how sometimes... Sometimes, you know how this happens at work? Like, you know, the people are really complaining about the change out in the coffee. And really, it's you, right? Because you, you can't actually go like, I hate the new coffee. But you're like, the people, right? So you could do that. If that softens, it makes it easier to talk. We'll, we'll just call that guy Harvey. Harvey would say this. Harvey would say that. All right, fellas. We've got, uh, I've, I've gone way longer than I thought I would. And so I will at 745 make sure that I call it and uh, dismiss this. So you have about 10 minutes. All right, go for it.